Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion and you're listening to Shrink Wrap. Today's episode is entitled Awakening to the Specter of Apocalypse. What do you do when you're confronted with a madman willfully committing the war crime of aggression and who threatens nuclear annihilation if anyone tries to stop him? When I envisioned shrink wrap, this being only a second post and podcast, I had really hoped to dwell more on emotional intelligence and the related course that I'm preparing, and also to periodically opine on a diversity of topics related to the field of psychiatry and mental health issues in society more generally. However, recent events in southwestern Russia and Ukraine have so preoccupied me that I felt I needed to devote immediate attention to it. As I reflected more about it, I realized that it was not at all off-topic and that it had everything to do with societal, indeed global, mental health. And so this particular podcast is a look at the evolving crisis in Ukraine and some of the psychological dimensions that I don't see being sufficiently explored elsewhere in public discourse. Imagine that someone broke into your house, tied you up, and forced you to witness a vicious assault on a loved one, and then told you that if you tried to break free to protect them, they would kill you. And for good measure, they would kill everyone else in the vicinity. Of course, you would be horrified and frightened and enraged. Examining this from a psychological perspective, you would have been multiply traumatized, both via the threat to yourself and via witnessing the assault to your loved one. But further, you would have been traumatized by the anticipatory horror of this murderous psychopath killing innumerable others, whatever the outcome for your assaulted loved one. Once freed from this madman's grip, you would most likely do all you could to ensure that the assailant was captured and imprisoned. That is, unless in some nightmarish scenario, the murderer still stalked you, and vowed to unleash unimaginable harm to you and all whom you love, in other words, terrorizing you. It sounds like a scene out of the Marvel Comics Joker series. Alas, in this upside-down world of unhinged violence and cruelty, reality can eclipse fiction. The events of the prior several weeks have been similarly shocking, but even more so because of their scope and their implications. As a psychiatrist who is involved in the Global Physicians Anti-Nuclear War Movement, IPPNW, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, in the 1980s, I became much more familiar with the catastrophic medical and environmental consequences of nuclear weapons and nuclear war, and the very real threats to entire societal populations, if not global annihilation altogether, as a result of the rapidly escalating full-scale nuclear war. The policy at the time was one of M.A.D., Mutually Assured Destruction, 
yes, that actually existed as a policy. It is quite a telling acronym, as it is indeed madness that mankind would develop weapons that when used in a full-scale exchange, which is all too possible given the instantaneous decisions being made, as well as the algorithms employed, a conflagration could occur so quickly that would destroy mankind and make human and virtually all animal life extinct. This is not some fantasy that one can dismiss as though it were simply sci-fi fictional thriller or an engrossing video game that you could walk away from. It's been recognized for some time, especially by the psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton, who wrote extensively on the subject, that we live in a state of what might best be termed nuclear annihilation denial. The biopsychological purpose of denial is to keep our perception of extreme threats at bay so that we're not overpowered by them. Unfortunately, the defense mechanism denial is an unconsciously mediated, automatic psychological process that can serve to keep the threat entirely out of our consciousness. In other words, we live as though the threat did not exist at all. At that, never did and never will. The purpose of a defense mechanism may initially be adaptive, namely to ensure that we're not mentally overpowered and thus psychologically immobilized by that threat. However, defense mechanisms can be like an exuberant immune response in the mind. Denial can encapsulate consciousness and entirely wall off the intruding thought, refusing to allow entry into consciousness of the immediate dire threat. It's like taking the blinking red warning light entirely off of our dashboard. Clearly, one can see that this becomes a maladaptive psychological mechanism. While there is so much focus on the immediacy of the ground war, the brutality of Russian soldiers killing of civilians, and the sheer vastness of destruction, I fear that because of our denial of the nuclear threat, too little attention is being paid to the fact of and profound implications of overtly making a nuclear war threat. This is not simply the marauding of a superpower leader who wants to take over another territory and the deluded belief that that territory belongs to him and that he is restoring its glory by taking it into his empire. It struck me for some time how much power we entrust to leaders who apparently have little to no training in understanding the profound ethical implications of their foreign policy and military actions. It's as though they, too, are all in a state of denial or willful ignorance about the massive devastation and human carnage that can occur when they send their armies into battle, especially with the ever-increasing sophistication and reach of our vast array of destructive weapons. And yet, it is so incomprehensible now to conceive here in the present 
we witness a leader of a superpower, one holding a massive arsenal of nuclear weapons that could destroy the world ten times over, who is now threatening to utilize those weapons against anyone who would oppose his hegemonic designs. It would seem that the fundamental compact, that of the shared recognition of the delicate balance of powers among sovereign nations, has been willfully broached. Such a leader as Putin either does not understand or is indifferent to the complexity of the consequences that result when the fragile alliance around this compact holding these powers together is disrupted. In a way, the world itself and its balance of energies amongst the prevailing superpowers is itself like a radioactive atom. Though it exists stable and contained, it can be destabilized intentionally in the same way that a radioactive atom like uranium can be, its destructive energy rapidly unleashed by that rupture. It's a chain reaction that happens nearly instantaneously. The world now looks on in horrified shock and numbed helplessness as Putin, unilaterally speaking, for the entire country of Russia, while silencing its own people's oppositional voices under a threat of imprisonment, launches a vicious, unprovoked, killing rampage of its peaceful neighbor, Ukraine. War is an assault on the peace. While I am only a barely informed student of the ethics and laws governing nations' conduct of war, I was riveted some time ago by a reference made by U.N. Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. He served as U.N. Secretary General between 1953 and 1961 when he was killed in a plane crash thought to have been an assassination. And in that reference, he referred to war as an assault on the peace. In researching this post, I learned that this concept was formally established as part of the post-World War II Nuremberg Charter. But even there, its ethical genesis had a long ancestry, rooted in the core precepts of the ethics of war and just war theory. As succinctly summarized by Wikipedia, while establishing as a most grievous international violation the crime of a sovereign state's aggression, such a violation of the world order was pondered at least a century earlier and began to take hold in the emerging conceptualization known as just war theory. Just war theory posits two clusters of philosophical considerations in establishing the ethicality of a nation's war behavior, jus ad bellum and jus in bello. These two clusters delineate what ethical considerations must be examined jus ad bellum, namely before entering into war, and those that must be abided by use in bello, in the conduct of war. 
more recent theorists have introduced what to me is an obviously missing cluster, use post bellum, the ethical obligation of parties after war. As early as 1815, Napoleon was outlawed and declared to be an enemy and disturber of the tranquility of the world. That's a fascinating concept. Destabilizing the conditions for peace in the world, for setting the stage for aggression, was itself seen as a fundamental breakage of the compact among civilized nations who were then newly beginning to realize their independence, then perhaps only through the lens of trade. After the Nuremberg trials, their occurrence itself, a miracle of international cooperation in the genesis of international law, a body of understanding began to emerge. As clearly established by the charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal and in the judgment of the tribunal in 1950, three categories of war crimes committed by nation-states were articulated. More recently elaborated upon and reinforced by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, a sovereign state may be held accountable for actions which have now been expanded into one of four categories of crime. Genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. In the original proceedings of the Nuremberg Trials, this last, the crimes of aggression, had been referred to as crimes against peace. The Nuremberg Charter defined crimes against peace as planning, preparation, initiation, or waging of a war of aggression, or a war in violation of international treaties, agreements, or assurances, or participation in a common plan or conspiracy for the accomplishment of any of the foregoing. Even before considering the first three of the Rome criteria, the actions briefly articulated under crimes against the peace, that Nuremberg category now listed in the Rome Statute under the crime of aggression, would all seem to apply to Russia's assault on its neighbor. These ethical and legal concepts aside, let's look at certain of the psychosocietal dimensions of this nation-state aggression. Following this almost intensely as the evolving events of 9-11, it's like we're forced to witness in real time and on an ongoing basis, a mass murderer kill his victims in cold blood. But it's even worse in that the murderer has taken us, the entire world, hostage as a human shield to ensure that his plan is not interrupted and that no one dare challenge him. Just as for all mass murderers, it is a delusional belief. But as awful as this violent rape of sovereignty is, this assault on the peace, the recent bombardment of the massive ZNPP nuclear power complex in Ukraine 
leaves me so stunned that I can come to no other conclusion than that this superpower leader has lost all reason. And if he ever had it, he has abandoned even fundamental respect of that shared compact among civilized nations, the agreement not to violate the safety and sovereignty of other nations, not simply because of its inherent wrongfulness, but because by dint of the alliance amongst nations to protect against such violent incursion, it activates the ready arming of all nations in party to that compact. In other words, it compels engagement of all parties in war. The aggressor says, in effect, I'll do what I want, and there's nothing you can do about it. I have a gun to your head, and all you can do is look helplessly on. Now, when you combine the reckless endangerment of the attack on the ZNPP nuclear power facility with Putin's just prior having put his nuclear forces on high alert publicly, it's clear that Putin intends to hold the entire world helplessly hostage to his rape and pillage of Ukraine. And let's be clear, thereafter of any territory of his design that he wishes to destroy. Any leader who broaches the nuclear war tripwire to achieve his grandiose ends is obviously one who disregards the entire world's safety for his own rapacious and delusional ends. No matter how couched in the nostalgic and patriotic-sounding words of motherland, he extols to his captive people. His unilateral move to take Ukraine at nuclear gunpoint is the planetary equivalent of a robber engaging in mass murder while employing the terrorist threat of global destruction, yes, of self and all others, if anybody tries to stop him. Let's call it for what it is. It's the genocidal capture of an entire country for craven gain, accompanied by an explicit threat to kill all of humanity and to make the world uninhabitable. It constitutes such a grotesque deviance from negotiated treaties, understandings amongst nations, that its sheer reneging of all international agreements carefully negotiated over decades leaves one stunned in disbelief. Such abruption and threat of mass destruction is the ultimate tool of the terrorist. And he has made clear if anyone dares stop him, he threatens to kill all of humanity and to make the world uninhabitable by humans for eons. It's like actively witnessing a bomb-laden hijacking, but here, not of a single plane, but of the entire world, if his demands are not met. Whether Putin originally thought it would be a no-resistance cakewalk, or whether, as a grandiosely delusional emperor, he was conquest-crazed to recreate the autocratic communist empire, 
within which privileged cronyism he matured, employed as one of the in-the-know Gestapo-like KGB agents, the reality is he is unhinged. And as one who violently assaults another sovereign and then recklessly ups the ante by broaching the possibility of nuclear war and orders his forces to mercilessly and indiscriminately destroy the people of a non-aggressor nation, an entire nation, it's clear he has no sense of limits and no regard for human life or for cooperation amongst nations. He intends to continue to conduct his siege and openly murder, torture, and starve all who stand in his way. By definition, he is not just a maniacal, psychopathic killer. He is a war criminal, actively and knowingly continuing in his vicious criminality. His despotism and power lust rivals that of Adolf Hitler's. Perhaps the key hopeful difference from the Third Reich's rabid ascendancy, and that's rabid, not rapid, and its descent into genocide, is that his own people, the Russian people, that is, except for those who are cronies in his privileged corruption scheme, were already seething at his tyranny and suppression of their hard-won freedoms. It appears that they, too, are horrified at his psychopathic terrorism. They likely also sense that because his recklessly impulsive power gambit has roused not only the defiant resistance of Ukraine, but the revulsion of nearly the entire world, they will now not only experience renewed suffering as a people by the array of severe punitive sanctions imposed, but Putin, their leader, will likely impose harsher repression of their voices, executing those who dare take to the street to exclaim their opposition to his reprehensibly immoral tyranny. Echoing the era of the heinous Gestapo and SS, it wouldn't be at all surprising to see the Iron Curtain again fall, eliminating all hints of democratization that had been in progress since Gorbachev. Isn't that the cycle of all oligarchic, fascist regimes? It has been proven throughout history that corrupt empires that abuse their own people by restricting their rights and that violate the sovereignty of other nations are doomed to eventual destruction. Our very human nature, from which we derive our shared principles of human rights, refuses to be subjugated to the menacing demands of a vicious tyrant. The immediate neighbor nations witnessing such an assault by a tyrannical leader will, and by necessity for their own survival must, find the quickest way to contain the vicious assailant. Given the psychopathy and malignant narcissism of the leader and his free hand in extinguishing opponents while holding the world hostage, it will likely be at immense cost of human life. 
and as well to all other systems of ecologically balanced life. But any such marauding beast must be definitively halted and rendered powerless. And presuming the madman will not have laid waste to civilization entirely, yet another post-war reconstruction must follow with renewed calls for unity and collaboration among nations. Yet again, the world must study the lessons of unbridled power and greed and disrespect of the compact amongst them and strive to recognize the necessity of mutual respect and collaboration in our heretofore interdependent world. Most of us are entirely powerless as we witness this horror. We feel revulsion, and all we can do is bow our heads in sorrow and open our hearts in compassion for those who are suffering and grieving. And we must proceed most carefully in our involvement because we are negotiating with a terrorist who has the entire world at bay with his nuclear weapons. But perhaps by our unified spirit of compassion and our abhorrence of such violent behavior, together we might bring about a halt to this wanton mass murder and ecological destruction. And by doing so, hopefully enable a deeper level of understanding and healing in this troubled world. One thing we cannot afford to do is to allow our denial to shut us off from the very real threat to our human and planetary existence due to Putin's escalation of this conflict into the nuclear zone. Nor can we allow our avoidance of witnessing others' heart-rending suffering to push us into a state of walled-off isolationism, indifferent to their plight. We are all part of this interconnected and interdependent human family. Now, as never before fully realized, there is no escaping that reality. And our immediate human task now is to once again strive to become mutually respectful civilizations working collaboratively for each other's well-being and in harmony with the increasingly fragile planet which hosts us. You've been listening to Shrink Wrap. I'm Kernan Mannion. Thanks so much. Take care. Be well.